chapter 4 of Mark, and we'll finish the book of Mark today as we look into those texts. Mark chapter 4, verse 30 through 41, we'll get through the end of this chapter today, and we'll finish this one day in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was quite a day, quite a day as we will rehearse today what he's done. Mark chapter 4, verse 30, and he, that's Jesus, said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and the forms, forms a large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without parables. But he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. Verse 35, and on that day, so we're in the, still the same day, when the evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much as the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the seas, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we thank you for the church that you have gathered. Lord, we, we revel in the fact that you would choose us out of the world. You would open our minds and hearts to believe in this Jesus right here whom we've read. We would believe that he would not only perform such miracles and exercise such authority to show that he had the right to claim us, Lord. That he could die a perfect death and make us his children, Lord. We thank you for doing that for us, Lord. We are your church. We are your bride. And though, Lord, we still fail you at times, Lord, you love us and have forgiven our sins. And you gather us together to sing praises to you, to lift up our voices to you, to claim a higher view of you constantly, Lord. Lord, you love your word being taught. You gave it to us so we would know you, Lord. So what a pleasure it is to stand before a, a large group of people who love the Lord Jesus who love the Word. Lord, help us. May we not treat it like a, like a lamp with a bushel over it, Lord. But may we let it shine bright, Lord. Continue to challenge us. Lord, you told us in the Scriptures that we should excel still more. Excel still more, Lord. Father, we should run the race till you return. Lord, thank you for that. Father, we think of those who could not be here today. Our hearts go out for them. Many of them in this room are here because they, you healed them, Lord. You gave them strength. You've returned them. But there are still others that are not well enough to be here, Lord. So our hearts go out for them. We pray that they are able to even watch now as we pray and teach your word, Lord. Father, be with our missionaries around the world. We love them dearly. We are so grateful for what they're doing. May we give and pray and Hold a rope tight, Lord, as they serve in places that we can't. Lord, thank you for hearing us today. Thank you for the church. I am so encouraged by the church, Lord. May you be encouraged and blessed from what we say, sing, and do here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, these passages today will teach us that though the world sees church and Jesus as a small little thing that happened in history, there is so much more. It's just not this religious group that, well, they'll go away someday. But it is a group that holds to an unimaginable power of the Lord Jesus Christ, understood through his word, 
And, and the effects on humanity from the church are, are amazing. We'll look at that as well today. But time is limited, so let's jump into our message today. Just look at the very first thought here. A humble confidence in the gospel and an unimaginable harvest. When you think about the mustard seed, it's kind of a humble seed. <laughs> um, and here we're in the fourth illustration of an agriculture lesson here of a fruit for sower. And here Jesus now turns to this humble mustard seed. And I think the goal is he wants to give you humble confidence in Christ. Humble confidence in what he's doing. Though it seems small, it may and it will become great and large in time. So Jesus here is reminding us that we are blessed to be in the word. We're blessed to be a new creation. And though maybe your faith started as a young child um, and, and you've walked through this life in sometimes very difficult circumstances, there is a great harvest coming, an unimaginable harvest when we step into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. I was reminded as I studied this and just going back to the words that would have been such a rich truth to the disciples. In Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church. I will build my church. And no matter what, what we see sometimes or, or see changes that happen, it is Christ who builds his church. And this is the lessons he wants to teach us. Notice, and as we turn back to verse 30 of chapter 4, and he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? Well, here Jesus is going to give a parable of the kingdom of God and show that small beginnings have unimaginable outcomes. And the plan of God was just that. And I mean, if you just, it isn't hard to think of biblical history, biblical redemptive history. It isn't hard. He, he gives, he makes man and woman, he gives them names, he gives them to each other. Um, he has a plan that's for us to enjoy him forever. And yet, man, fails to listen to God, we believe Satan over, over God, and we believe that lie, and man is plunged into depravity. But the plan seems small and seems simple, and, and Jesus there, probably the pre-incarnate Christ there in the, in the garden says, look, I have a plan, I'm going to bring a seed <laughs> that's going to crush the head of Satan. And it probably seems so small as they, again, are put out of the garden so they can't get next to that tree of life and, and not be able to die and they just deal with the sin for the rest of eternity. Um, and they're, So they're put out of the garden and they have children. One child kills another. There's difficulties. Pretty soon the world begins to populate. They turn against God again. He rescues eight people out in an ark. It just seems like it's so small, doesn't it? Eight people grab, get onto an ark in, Rome, in Genesis Six through eight. Eight people out of possibly millions on the earth. And yet, and yet, our Old Testament biblical theology has a progressive redemption to it. And person after person, he begins to claim and we begin to see him move as he's leading to the cross. And even in his own ministry, he starts with his handful of disciples. <laughs> Everything he does seems to be small. Um, just getting ahead and reading in my own studies. Here he has time to feed these great amounts of people. He takes a little kid's lunch. <laughs> two fishes and five loaves, or five fishes and two loaves. Whatever, it's small, right? And he grabs that bag or lunch bag and he says, look, I'm going to feed everybody with it. This is what he does. He finds blind men and, and he spits on the ground and makes mud and puts it on their eyes and they, they see and the ramifications of, of those blind men are amazing. It's just, this is the way the Lord works. He works in small ways and to illustrate that he gives another agriculture lesson to what the kingdom of God is going to eventually be like. Verses 31, it's like a mustard seed. And when it is sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, when yet it is sown, it, be, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches. Now, he compares this advancement of the gospel, this kingdom of God, to a mustard seed. He calls it the smallest of seeds. And there's been people that have written on it, well, it's not the smallest of seeds. Well, he's talking about farming seeds. It isn't hard to understand that. If you've ever farmed grain, there's oats and barley and wheat. And if you've ever seen a mustard seed, it's very, very small. 
And so it was the smallest of those that they would farm that had protein value that they would use in that first century agriculture. But the seed is very small, and Jesus loves to use it. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, be moved here and there, and it will be moved, and nothing will be impossible to you. He loves to use that analogy, even in his metaphors of teaching of what happens when faith is absolutely grasped, what can happen. And and you go, well, I, I, I don't know if I can move a mountain. Well, think what's happened in your faith. There was a day where God opened your mind to to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of what you were doing and where you were going before that happened. You you were hell-bound. We all were. There's nothing good coming from that. And yet, after salvation, you begin to grow. He, He places you in a family. He reserves for you a reward and inheritance, according to 1 Peter, that can never, ever fade away. You're part of a a group of people that's now untold millions. See, that's what it does. So Jesus loves to remind us of that. And everyone in the first century, or even today, realizes that, that things start small. Look at verse 32. Yet when sown, he's talking about the seed, it grows up and becomes larger than the garden plants. And forms branches when the town we were just came from before we came here was Hollister, California. And in the ground there, in the soil, is a natural, um, what we call wild mustard seed. And most wild things, if you've seen wild oats, they don't grow a real big head. They grow tall stalks, but they don't put out the protein level of um, a real true seed, like an oat seed that has been grown for for seed. Uh, mustard seed is everywhere. In Hollister, if you don't farm, everything is yellow in the spring. Hills are green, all the fields turn yellow if you don't farm them. And if, if you put them into really good soil um, and don't do anything with them, they'll get big. We had some in our yard that were trunks on them like that. And one got 15 feet tall, and there was a bunch of red-winged blackbirds that set up their nest in it. And I thought of the stacks. And so he's, he's using that, and he has a way of speaking about things that everyone knew. So what a powerful teaching that this must have been to the disciples. As they began to look at this, he said, look, though this thing looks like it's starting small, though it looks like it's, it's uh, man, it's just 12 guys and a bunch of people wanting to be healed and be, be fed, Jesus is reminding them there's something greater coming. There is something much greater beyond your imagination. It is the way of our Messiah, sent to this earth, placed in the womb of Mary, um, a just, just a conception, a small conception, placed in the womb of Mary, born in a manger, born without fanfare, the king of kings there, young family on the run. You remember they, they end up running to Egypt, trying to hide from Herod. They, they're not raised in significant religious communities. And then by the time he does come on, we got this guy wearing camel hair, dipping locusts in honey and eating them, and he's the forerunner. I mean, it's just, it's just not how you would want to introduce the king of kings, we would think. And yet that's what he does. He comes with no social status, no religious elite. He has fearful men around him. They're slow to believe. They're spiritually weak. They fled at his arrest. Some even denied him right before his death. And upon his death, there's 120 followers hiding in a room. At his appearance of his resurrection, he only appears to 500. But then, Acts 2, an explosion of the church. 3,000 people saved, then four, then five. And it begins to grow. And today, we're part of a church after 2,000 years as untold millions are part of that. And so he's using this example. Look, this is the smallest seed that's sown. There's, there's, there's none smaller than that that we farm with. But yet when it's planted, look what happens. Look how big it becomes. Notice at the end of the verse, he says this. So that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. So the birds of the air can nest under its shade. This parable certainly is going beyond the spiritual kingdom made up of you and I. 
And so we believe he's also speaking of of an earthly kingdom that he will set up someday. Here we use this Old Testament imagery here. This verse is quoted out of the Psalms. It's quoted out of Daniel. It's quoted out of Ezekiel. If you'll look in your Bible there, you'll see references to it. And so in the church age, all these people are drawn to the sovereignty of God. And he's building this spiritual kingdom. We have people from all walks of life in here. There's people that speak different languages. We're raised in different continents than ours. And God has put us together. And he brings all people to this massive work that he's doing. We are standing amazed of him. But there is a day coming when he'll draw all nations to his kingdom. He will rule and reign. And just think about the effect. Think about the effect of Christianity right now. And as you watch the last presidential race, everybody was after the evangelical vote. Did you catch that? Now, we have to rephrase what the evangelical vote is anymore. Because <laughs> it gets crazy in that whole line. But, but notice, even the world takes notice of, quote, the evangelical vote. And, and what it told me was, Christians do make a difference. And, and though there is views out there that, that we probably wouldn't participate in the evangelical world, it shows that there's a power there that God has put his presence in this world. Just think about the spiritual strength that the church gives to society. And, and you go, well, we're losing a lot of that. Yeah, but for a long time, this church has brought spiritual truth to the world. The gospel is, is ever present with the, with the true church. We fight for those things. So it affects culture, it affects economics. It certainly affects morals. I thank the Lord that I was raised in a, in a fairly moral United States in our upbringings. And yet the heart of man has always been deceitfully wicked, but yet it affects. And yet one day Christ will come and he'll set his kingdom up and will reign with him. And he'll draw all nations to that, that massive rule and reign that he has. And in in, in like the birds of the air that would nest into the shade of this massive mustard tree here, so does he draw all walks of life. And you can see where he is drawing us back to the importance of the message here. This also gives us a humble confidence to proclaim God's word. I, I love this part of this. I said, Lord, I can trust you. I can trust you with staying to what you say, not trying to manipulate it to what I want it to say. Because he says, if you plant this truth, if you plant the gospel, if you put the gospel in the ground in the hearts of man, if you allow me to farm those hearts and you allow me to take this gospel and you participate with me, my word won't return void. There's no missionary worth their salt that must cling to that. Because you'll go into parts of society that reject God and, and they're hang on believing that God says, I'll draw all nations to myself. God himself in Isaiah 49, 6 says, it's too small a thing for just the nations of Israel. And I, you will be a light to all the nations. So here's this great reminder. Preach the gospel. Don't be afraid to share it with somebody. You never know what God's doing, who he's gathering into himself. We watched those things happen this week, even as we met with people, sharing the gospel and watching the gospel take root in people's lives. What a phenomenal thing. And though you and I may feel weak at times and maybe frail, submit to the power of God's word. Ask the, ask the Lord to help you trust the word of God in your marriage, in your business, uh, in, in your family, in the way you conduct yourself. And watch the return that comes. Notice verse 33, there's a, a, a bit of a commentary here of what's going on. Verse 33, he says, with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without parables, but he was explaining everything in private to his own disciples. So Jesus now is hiding truth from the unbelieving, those who reject him. Make sure you understand that. He's hiding truth from these religious leaders, from the crowds that were not after him for who he was. Matthew, in this same uh, text, the same situation here as Matthew records, it says, This was to fulfill what was spoken about the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things hidden 
since the foundations of the world. So when we read the parables, we as believers have the Holy Spirit in us and we look at this and we go, wow, he's sharing things that the world cannot understand. He's opening up things from the foundations of the world and teaching to us. And that's why this parabolic ministry is such an important truth to us. Yet Jesus knew who were his followers. And he knows today. He knows who belonged to him and who doesn't. It is not difficult for him. For us, it's a little difficult. We don't always know who's a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ for a while. We can't see into their hearts. But he knows. And he has left his truth behind in us. I, I, I want to I go to 1 Corinthians real quick, because just to end this part, and then we'll deal with the storm that's coming. Um, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, because... It's important that you understand that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, he does show you his truth. It is not going to be hidden from you. I know sometimes when you read these texts, it's a little bit unnerving when Jesus says, I'm going to hide truth from them. Let me tell you, these verses here are going to help you show you whether you're a believer or not. They're going to help you understand that if you know the Lord, he has revealed these things. Look with me at second, first, first Corinthians 2, chapter, chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. Now, these are amazing things. Things, notice in verse 9, things the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, nor have, now look at this phrase, nor have entered the heart of man. That's verse 9. So there's a lot of people say, oh, that's talking about heaven. That is not. This is not a ver- that's probably true of heaven, but that's not what this verse is about. It's about when you become a believer, God opens your heart and mind and eyes and ears to things you never knew before. And so he says in verse 10, for God has revealed them to us through the Spirit. So friend, if you're here and you go, I never know what they're talking about in church. I don't understand this gospel thing. I'm a good person. It's because you, you haven't been revealed. He hasn't revealed these things to you. Because that's what he does. He doesn't hide them from those who believe in him. So for, to us, he has revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The reason why is he is God, right? So he shares that deity with God. He shares that nature. Verse 11, for whom among men know the thoughts of men except the spirit of man which is in him. Let's think about that. What Paul is saying is the natural man, when Jesus says, look, I'm going to hide these from them, he leaves them in their nature, in their natural position. And the the only thing a natural person, meaning an unsafe person, can understand are the things of natural man. So that's why when you talk to somebody and they reject Jesus, you go, I don't understand. We explained it clear. We read the Bible. I explained the gospel. And they just, they didn't want it. They're left to their own thinking. They're left to their natural thinking, which is fallen. We're born sinners. We're born deprived. We're born alienated from God. And so left to that position, they hear those things, and it just doesn't do anything. So Paul says, the only thing they know is their own thoughts, the spirit of man. Even so, now look at this, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. So who has to give us the thoughts of God? The spirit of God. And how does he do that? Through Christ and his word. Look at verse 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world. Isn't that great news? (laughs) We already have that. I was born with that. That's a self-centered, I'm my own God, I put idols in my heart, and I follow what I want to follow, right? So now he's looking at us in a salvific state. He's saying, now we we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit of who is from God. Friend, It is an amazing thought to think that when God saves us, he puts his own spirit in us so we'll know him. See, we're without excuse. If you're a believer, he's given you his own spirit so you'll know him, middle of verse 12, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. If salvation is difficult for something, for somebody, if they just fight it all the time, well, that's not free. But to you, and it's free. We hear the word of God and we go, man, that's good. I, I want to memorize that passage. I want to learn to live by that. Man, I love my Lord for doing that. Oh, but not to the person. The other person, they go, yeah, I'm just trying to get my box checked here and go to church on Sunday. You know, I got a tough life out there and I don't need all this God stuff in there. I just need some encouragement. See, so they don't get it. 
But look, he says, look, the things freely given to us, we understand them. Verse 13, which things we speak of. We also speak, right? Not, the, not words taught by human wisdom. See, this is beyond your, your, what your pastor's teaching. The word of God is way beyond that. The word of God takes truth and pierces our hearts. And though, though he uses pastors and teachers to teach us these truths, there are things that not that man just readily gets off the street. But those taught by the Spirit, combined, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual word, back to the natural man, verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of, of the Spirit of God. They're foolish to him. Boy, you, you want me to forsake all other and follow you? You, know, you want me to put Jesus first in my life? You want me to give my times and talents and, and monies to him? You want me to live a life dedicated first and foremost to the Lord Jesus Christ? That sounds foreign to the, to the natural person. They're foolish to him. Look at the middle of the verse. He can't understand them. And then he uses this phrase, because they're spiritually appraised. If you appraise something, what are you doing? Trying to get the value of it, aren't you? See, Jesus isn't valuable. The word is not valuable to you. It's just something, hey, I was raised with it. There's some good stuff in there, but it's not valuable to me. See, he's separating the difference. Verse 15, but he who is spiritually appraises, he who is spiritually appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. So he's talking about the Spirit of God. He's talking about God. For who has known the mind of the Lord that, we, that, that he will instruct him? And then this last phrase, but we have the mind of Christ. So when you see Jesus separating things, when he is um, going, he's speaking in parables, he knows whose are his. If you're in here today and you say, Lord, I don't want to be blocked from your truth, tell him that. If you're wrestling with your salvation and trying to realize, wow, Lord, I don't have any desire for you in my life, you need to tell him that. Tell him you want to know him. Tell him you want to see him and believe in him. So here he ends now, as we turn back to chapter 4, he ends the teaching of that day. But it's not over. Look with me at the next set of verses. Number two, the master sower is also the creator. All of a sudden, we see that the day is still continuing. The teaching lessons are done, the healing, and, and all the people that are crowding in him, all that's taken care of. And now it says in verse 35, on that day when it was evening. Ooh, we're still in that day. And that's an amazing thing. On that day, what a long, fruitful day of ministry. It started in chapter 3, verse 20, and goes all the way through chapter 4 in, in this one day. It's, remember, he comes home to Capernaum, Capernaum. He's coming with his disciples. It's such a massive crowd that he cannot eat. His family comes um, from Galilee thinking he's lost his mind. So they're going to come in and rescue him. Meanwhile, he's teaching and healing and exercising his authority. There's a mute, demon-possessed man that's brought to him. He heals that man, casts the demon out. There, the religious leaders now accuse Jesus of being in league with Satan. He masterfully defends himself and then proves that the religious leaders are the one in league with Satan because they blaspheme the Holy Spirit by rejecting him. What an amazing story that was. Then the day goes on. From there, he leaves the town, he moves out, and he begins to identify who his true family are. People say, hey, your, your mother and your brothers are out there. And he says, my mother and brother are the ones who do the will of God. And then as he moves out towards the sea, as he gets away from the traps of the religious elite, there he begins his open-air preaching. And then he begins his parabolic teaching. He starts to teach these lessons on the sower, and he, he lays out who the true followers are and who are not. And he starts to talk about the, the, the seed that falls on the hard ground. We call it the, the heart of pavement. Then the shallow heart and the infested heart. And eventually the plowed heart. And he's doing all of this sitting in a boat talking to the crowd. Do you remember that? So notice in verse, um, verse 36. He says, leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat Look at this phrase, just as he was. Someone asked me, what does that mean? Well, he's sitting in the boat talking to people. So they just left him in there. They all jumped in and left. And so here on this very last day, the Lord has one more lesson to teach. One more lesson. 
And as we'll see in Mark 5, he has a divine appointment with a demonic man living in the tombs across the sea. But he wants his, his disciples to see one more thing. So here's Jesus sitting in a fishing boat, probably belongs to one of the family fishing businesses. He's joined by the rest of the disciples and a few other faithful followers in other boats, the text says. And they set out across Galilee with this, this little gentle breeze behind them. But there's something coming. There's a storm coming. And it's interesting that these seasoned men who have been on this sea all their lives, they don't sense anything. So God's about ready to do something. Second thought, B, the spiritual storm that comes with fear and faithfulness. The Sea of Galilee is an amazing uh, sea. It's really not a sea. It's a giant freshwater lake. And it gets named lots of things through the years, depending on who was ruling and reigning at the time. But basically, it's a, it's a harp-shaped, freshwater, large lake um, that to the north of it is Mount Hermon. It's over 9,000 feet tall. And so there's fresh springs that flow from that. That hits the upper Jordan River, and they flow into the sea. Over to the east is what is known as the Great Rift Valley. And this is full of steep cliffs and desert hills. And they flow all the way from Syria over to that. So what happens in this place is this, every once in a while, these cool air comes from Mount Hermon. And this warm air comes from the rift. And they collide right over the sea. And sometimes they produce massive waves. Even today, they, they regularly... Um, can measure 10-foot waves on that lake. Now, now, it's not a lake, so it doesn't have tides that are going back, I mean, an ocean, so it doesn't have tides. They're wind-driven waves. Now, think about these guys. They're in homemade boats, you know. Just, maybe there's someone building them for them, but they're wooden. They're not, uh, you know, a Boston whaler that you can cut in two and still survive out there. Uh, these things uh, are out there. They're small, they're maneuverable, and they're out there in these winds, that comes. Now, this story is fun because it takes on a little bit of uh, a story like Jonah, right? And, of course, Jesus is not running from God, but we do know that God sent the storm for Jonah, right? He directed it right towards that. And here, Jesus is going to show his authority over his creation. And, he's gonna, and God's going to hurl this storm at them. He's going to expose um, them. He's going to expose their fears. He's going to expose who's in the boat with them because right now they still don't quite know Who's, who's with them? Look at verse 38 with me. Jesus himself was in the stern, that would be the, the back end of the boat, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, at least seven of these men, when we studied study their lives, at least seven of them were seasoned fishermen. And again, this is no ordinary stone. It's truly scaring them. Uh, several men, there's actually men in here that told me whether they were surfing or out on, out on the ocean, the times where they really became fearful when uh, things got out of control from a storm-wise of what that feels like. I, I don't think I've ever been in that position, but listening to them, you could tell that these guys who have spent a lot of time on the water said, man, we were scared. We didn't know how this was going to turn out. Well, that's what's happening here. This storm is provoking fear in them. But what the Lord's going to do is show them that their fear um, is because they lack a faith, lack a trust, right? Now, remember what has happened that day. He's cast demons out. He spoke with such great authority. And they, they tend to forget, just like you and I, we tend to forget who's in the boat of life with us. Now, Jesus said in Luke 24 that all of the scriptures were about him. Let me show you some things that would have been helpful for them to remind them. Go to Psalms chapter 65. Psalm 65. Now these are written um, a thousand years before Christ. But let's listen to a few of these. Psalm 65, 5-7. By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You who are the trust of, trust of all the ends of the earth and, and over the furthest seas, who establishes the mountains by strength, and gird them up with might, who still the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves and the turmoil of people. There, there's one for you. Could go over to chapter 89. Chapter 89, verse 9. 
Here again, the psalmist says, you rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Want one more? Psalms 107. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord. It's almost written like it's written to the disciples. And his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up stormy winds, which, he, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They arose up to the heavens, and they went down to the depths. They melt, their, their souls melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like drunk men and were at, at, at their wit's end. There's guys that tell you about when you get caught in a storm, you just stagger around on the boat trying to keep your feet on then, the, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still so that the waters of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So he guided them to the desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his wonders of the sons of men. So here we, we have truths. And if, if they would have just recalled the Old Testament, they would have said, wait a minute, only God can do these things. Only God can do these things. Now, before we move on just to his final thoughts, you and I step into spiritual storms all the time, <laughs> don't we? Things seem like they're going safe. Uh, as I read this and began to study this, when they got in the boat, it was the end of a long day. You know, they had had this battle with the scribes and Pharisees and people were crowding them so much they couldn't even get a bite to eat. It seems like a long day. And could you imagine finally getting away from those crowds? They get in and there's a little gentle breeze and they're just moving away from their problems, you know, maybe waving, goodbye, we're going to be with Jesus, leave us alone. I mean, that's kind of like life, isn't it, though? You and I kind of drift away and we go, oh, man. I just need some peace. I just need to settle down. And yet the Lord has a storm for us. And every once in a while, he casts storms in our life to reveal what we, where we place our faith. And, and, and it happens that one of the things that struck me is that these were not just men who had not been on the water much. Maybe Matthew was a tax collector. Maybe he was really scared. But it seems that all the disciples are very frightened. They're all coming to him. And so this tells me that even men that know what they're doing, pastors who spend their life in the Word of God, have seasons of life where storms come that reveal our faith of what we really put our trust in. When things don't go your way. And he loves to do this. And so there, this spiritual storm often comes to expose fear and faithlessness in us. And let me ask you this, have you forgotten who's in the boat with you? Sometimes we do, don't we? And, and here's the way we forget. We grab the oars and we just start pulling. We're just going to solo bootstrap this ourselves out of this thing, right? Just pull as hard as we can, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, try to work our way out of this. In the end, the boat just starts filling up. <laughs> and your fears begin to overwhelm you. And here, it's interesting what they did, and sometimes we don't really see this. The disciples go to who? They run to Jesus. There's a point where they give up, they set the oars down, and they go to Jesus. It was such a reminder this week as I worked through the sermon again this week, I thought, oh Lord, there's times we've got to set these oars down where we're pulling so hard to try to get ourselves out of some difficulty and we're so upset about this or that and, and we're bothered by this person or whatever it may be and we're pulling and pulling. Set the oars down and go talk to Jesus. And that's what he calls us to do. And as we'll see in our third thought here, the, the creator exposes our lack of faith and he calms our spiritual storms. Notice what he does, verse 39, he got up, and then he rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, quote, here's a quote from him, hush, literally um, paralyzes the idea, hush, be still. The word still, we get the word to muzzle. <laughs> he muzzled the wind. And the wind died down and became perfectly still. Here we really see the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. This is a fully God-man. 
He's, he's God in the fact that he can say, this is my creation, stop. You do whatever I tell you to do, and it instantly, instantly obeys him. And yet he's man, he's tired, he's sleeping in the rear end of the boat with his head on a cushion because he's been ministering all day long. So much that he couldn't even get a bite to eat. And so we see this beautiful, what we call theological term, the hypostatic union of God, the hypostatic union of Christ, where he's fully God, fully man, functioning in both realms. So you and I would put our faith in him, the God-man, the one who is tired, asleep in the back of the boat, but the one has, who has everything totally in control. Spurgeon, speaking of this sermon, he says, there is no trace of the storm the moment he awakes. The most blustering and conflicting winds slept like a babe in its mother's arms. The waves became marble. <laughs> wow, what a creator. What a savior who could stand up and do those things. And by now, don't you think he's proven his authority over and over, but yet he still must ask, and I think he asks this question to us often, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to people who have left all to follow him. And so he's talking to us today. So Christian, you have to answer that. Answer that question, Christian. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? If faith is a God-given blessing from God that he opens our hearts and minds to believe, why are we still acting as though we have no faith at times? Has Jesus changed? Has Jesus incapable of solving our difficulties? No matter what they are, family, medical, financial, you, you name it, is he not the one who has authority over all things? And so you and I have to answer that. Oh, friend, without Christ, you have to answer this too. Who is he? Is he the king of kings? Is he the Lord of lords? Is he truly God? Because if he's God and does have all things in control, you will have to answer to him someday. And so we ask that question, why are you afraid? Why are we afraid still? For us as Christians, at times, we put our faith in things that can't save us, can't, can't help us, we'll drown if we hold on to those things. There's times we'll do that. It comes out in our anger towards people we love. It comes out in our, our a lack of handling finances right. It, it comes out in lack of being patient with people or your church or family member or whatever it means. All that starts to come out. It surfaces itself as you and I don't run to a Savior. And we try to handle those things ourselves. The Bible is just repeat the New Testament. Just going to give you some, some, a few verses. Hebrews chapter 13, 5 and 6. I will never desert you. This is from the Lord. I will never forsake you. We always said in our house, be careful the word never. You know, I'll never do that. Well, he, he probably will. But God can use him, right? I will never desert you. Well, I feel deserted. I will never forsake you. Look what it goes on. So that we have confidence to say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Psalms 55, 22, cast your burdens upon the Lord, for he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And then, of course, the great text out of Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor heights nor depths nor waves <laughs> and difficulties within the life, that's my add to it, nor any else, other thing created shall be separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, Lord, help me not to be afraid. Help me to live by faith. There will be a day, brothers and sisters, you will live by sight. Do you know that? Someday you will stand in his presence and you will live by sight. He is there. But right now he asks us to live by faith. 
And to live by faith, you have to deny self. There's, there's no other way around it. You have to deny self to live by faith. And you have to deny what you often see. Lord, it doesn't look like there's a way out of this. This looks too difficult. This looks too hard for me. But I am going to live by faith, Lord. And I'm going to trust you. Notice our last thought. Our spiritual storm creates a healthy fear for the master. The original language is amazing here. In the English it says, They became very afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The original language says this, They feared with great fear. (laughs) Now they're really afraid. You thought their fear was real? When the, when the 10-foot waves are coming over a wooden boat and they're out in the middle of the lake that they've known and been on all their life and they're this is it type of thing, don't you care that we're going to perish is the word they used. Now they're really afraid. Think about who they're in the boat with. And I think the stark realization that the creator himself was in the boat and it absolutely swamps their emotions in such a way that now they're truly frightened. Who is this? Who is this? Have you ever said that? Have you ever been on your knees in time of prayer and just talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, I don't think I understand fully who you are. One of those aha moments that we have when we say, Lord, forgive me for not realizing who I walk with daily, who watches over me, who will not let me stumble, who takes me through the fire, who walks on the water. We sing that whole song right as we're singing. I go, great song. That's what we're teaching about. That's, that's who we walk with. Do you have those moments when you go, Lord, I am failing to trust the one who can speak to the seas? who can control all things. See, they knew God had such power. They were convinced of that. They were good Jews. They knew God had such power. Now they came to the stark realization that Jesus was the one who held the authority and power of all things. And their comment is, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea, and listen to the word they chose, obey him. We're not even obeying God, but his creation obeys him. Matthew, recording of this is amazing. Chapter 14, verse 13, it says, Those who were in the boat, listen to this, worshipped him, saying, Certainly you are the Son of God. Nobody has authority like that. Jesus later in John 10 said, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe in me. See him equate himself to God? We create, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1, right? The New Testament says it's Christ. So there's a connection of seeing God and Christ and equal equality in their nature and their, in their glory and their person. They, they're able to do things that we can't even imagine. And here, right here, they understand that they're seeing something that only God can do. I don't know why they didn't get that when the paralytic got up in his bed and walked when he forgave their sins. I don't know why they didn't get it, but here they got it. And it reminds me, friend, Christian, there are times that God will just absolutely reveal himself through the word of God to you, and you'll go, Lord, forgive me. I don't know who I'm walking with at times. You are beyond my imagination. Let me take refuge in you. Let me take my solace in you. And when you see Jesus for who he truly is, worship flows. And I love the Matthew portion where it says they worshiped him. They just worshiped him. Do you walk by sight or do you walk by faith? If you walk by sight the rest of your life, you'll die in your sins. You will. A Christian walks by faith. And sometimes God is gracious to take us and allow us to go through storms that are so great that he makes you look to him as your only hope. I trust that you take those times and you cherish those times. Some of the most biggest growth in my life were the most difficult times in my life. Times where I felt, Lord, where are you? Crying out to him, Lord, I don't want this anymore. And there he revealed himself greater than ever. And your faith grows and you trust him. Drop the oar.
Stop paddling for a while. Some of you are paddling really hard, trying to hang on to something, trying to fight something that God has in your life. Drop the oar and go to Jesus. He's right there. He is the one that can control all things. Bow your knee to him. Father, thank you for an amazing lesson. This day is just, it's just an amazing day of the Lord. He's, he exercises authority in so many ways, Lord. All of society is trying to get to him. His family that doesn't even know who he is is, is thinking he's crazy. He, he reminds everybody that his family are those who do the will of God, those who trust the God, those who put their faith in God through Jesus Christ. He battles people who want authority and power who are lost. He exposes hearts that are hard and shallow and infested. And he shows the ones that are truly saved because they're producing fruit. God has done a work. And the work God does does not come back void. It produces, Lord. And then at the end of the day, he shows that small things turn into amazing things. The seed of a, the faith of a seed of a mustard seed, Lord, is just can expand to do such a marvelous things, Lord. And then finally, he puts them in a boat to expose that we live faithless lives at times, Lord. So we thank you for this message, Lord. I pray for those that are going through difficult times right now. And even as this message is spoken, they're wrestling with how tightly gripped they have their hands on an oar. Trying to solve something, trying to fix something. And they have not turned to Jesus. And so Lord, I pray that you would remind us that he is our only hope. There's nothing else. All other things will fail. All other things will disappear. And in the end, it will be only those who have their faith in Jesus Christ that will stand the storm. All others will be wiped away. And so Lord, cause us to be a church that stands firmly on our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of his word. Lord, give us strength when we're weak to turn to you. May you steal the storms of our life as we trust in you. Lord, thanks for this reminder. Blessings to this church, Lord. Help us to be a church that is strong in faith, Lord. Strong in faith in the word and our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.